Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of God. Let us hear it. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. This epistle to the Hebrews is identified at the very end as an exhortation. Suffer the exhortation, Paul writes near the end. And one of the phrases that you find constantly throughout this epistle, and in other places as well, is that phrase, let us. Let us. That is an exhortation type of phrase. And we find that in the very first verse here, which I'm taking as my text this afternoon, where Paul writes, let us therefore fear. Let us therefore fear. Fear can be a good emotion if it's exercised the right way and under the right circumstances. 
Perhaps you've heard stories of spectacular feats that have been accomplished because of fear. I heard once of a young man working under a car when the jack holding the car up suddenly broke. The young man's father was on hand to see the car fall on top of his son, and in the fear of the moment, the adrenaline, the adrenaline that was released in a system enabled him to lift the car off his son. I've never been in the military. I've never had to fight in a war. But I can't help but wonder if courage amounts to utilizing the energy that is released by fear in order to go forward into battle. To a lesser degree, I suppose you find the same thing in a musician who has to perform for the first time before a live audience. There's something dreadful in such a circumstance that triggers fear, but fear can be good if the energy it unleashes can be harnessed and utilized in the performance. By the same token, fear can be a terrible emotion if it gets the best of us, and instead of enabling us, it paralyzes us instead. When that happens to a performer, then the audience grows uneasy and sympathizes with the one who has been hindered by his fear and is not able to overcome it. Now in the scripture, there is a fear that we're to avoid. There's also a fear that we're to cultivate and utilize. Both of these ideas come together in a text in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, where Christ says, And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. So you see the two kinds of fears that are in play there? Don't fear. Don't be afraid of them that can kill the body. Fear the one who can do that and so much more. Fear God. John Brown has an insightful comment on the fears of unbelievers and believers. He writes, Both believers and unbelievers have their fears, but they arise from different sources and have quite opposite effects. The fear of unbelievers and the unbelieving fears of believers arise from unworthy thoughts of God, a distrust of his power, faithfulness, and goodness, a prevailing love of the present evil world and its enjoyments, which makes them more afraid of worldly losses and sufferings for righteousness' sake than of forfeiting the divine favor. Such fears not only indispose the mind for obedience, but lead directly to sin. But that godly fear, which is peculiar to believers, which arises from a just view, reverence, and esteem of the divine character, a supreme desire of his favor as their chief happiness, is a fear lest they should offend him and incur his just displeasure. Such a fear of him as outweighs all the allurements of sin on the one hand 
and all the terrors of suffering for righteousness' sake. On the other, this is that fear which Christ inculcates on his disciples in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5. I believe that that is the kind of fear that the author of Hebrews is calling for when he exhorts his readers in chapter 4, verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. The Hebrews, to whom this epistle is addressed, you see, were in danger of caving in to the wrong kind of fear, the fear of man, which bringeth a snare. And so the apostle endeavors to motivate them to persevere in their faith by utilizing the right kind of fear. And what I want to do for a few moments this afternoon is to look at that right kind of fear. This is the fear that is called godly fear in Hebrews 12 and verse 28. And I think this text perhaps gives one of the clearest definitions of, you will, of what godly fear amounts to. Listen to what it says. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And I like the combination of those two terms together. I think they are both very similar in, in meaning, reverence and godly fear. So think with me then this afternoon on utilizing fear in the right way. Utilizing fear in the right way. There are a number of things in the chapter that show us either by direct statement or by implication what things we should fear. So consider with me, first of all, we must fear coming short of a promise. We must fear coming short of a promise. This is the thing directly stated in the text. Look at verse 1. Let us therefore fear lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. There is an ultimate and a practical sense that may be drawn from this text, which teaches us plainly that if unbelief rules our hearts, then we come short of the promise of his rest. We come short of the promises of the gospel. In other words, we come short of the peace of God that passes understanding. We come short of the joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. We come short of heaven and the rest that accompanies everlasting life. It's important to understand the real meaning of the text. Again, let me read from John Brown's commentary. These words are not to be understood as an exhortation to believers to be fearful in reference to their ultimate salvation. To all believers, it is distinctly promised that they shall never perish, but have everlasting life. To all believers, the words of our Lord to his disciples may be considered as addressed, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
Neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them me is greater than all, and none can pluck them out of my Father's hand. It never can be the duty of a believer to doubt the fulfillment of the promises which God has made to believers, and the more firmly he believes them, the more active will he be in the discharge of every duty. The joy of the Lord will be his strength. But believers, I'm continuing now with John Brown, but believers ought to fear and guard against the evil heart of unbelief, knowing that he who is completely under its influence cannot at all enter into God's rest, must be a stranger both in time and through eternity to that holy happiness in reference to which a promise has been left us. And knowing also that just in proportion to the degree in which we are influenced by it, that is unbelief, we come short of the enjoyment of that rest into which men enter believing and into which from the very nature of the case, it is impossible for them to enter in any other way. You cannot, in other words, if I could attempt to summarize this and make it more concise, you cannot ultimately lose your salvation. You can, however, due to the influence of unbelief, you can lose the joy of it. You can lose the peace and assurance of it. And so there's an ultimate application drawn from the text Unbelievers are lost in the end and will never enjoy the rest that God provides. And there's a practical application that can be drawn from the text. To the degree unbelief holds sway over us, we fail to enjoy God's rest, and we come short of having the joy of salvation as our strength. This is something we must fear in the sense that we should dread it and carefully watch against it. We should fear losing our spiritual vitality. We should fear having our religion reduced to mere dead orthodoxy. We should fear being unaffected by the glorious truths of Christ's love and Christ's provision for us and his broken body and shed blood as we contemplated this morning. And we should fear because if unbelief rules in the end, then the conclusion would have to be drawn that we were never saved, but only were hypocrites in the end. There's a tragic irony to the words of the text, and that it speaks of God leaving us a promise, a glorious promise that pertains to our well-being for time and eternity a promise of everlasting life given by God who cannot lie. There is nothing subtle in God's promise. There are no hidden clauses in fine print, nor is there any insincerity in God who freely offers the promise of rest. The promise comes fully, and it comes freely, and it has come at a very high price to God, and yet, sadly and tragically, there are those that do come short of the promise. 
There are those that are more fully swayed by the cares of the world and by the deceitfulness of riches whose lives have never been transformed by the promises of God. Sunday school this morning, we spent a little time dealing from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress with the character Demas. Demas is one who, for a time, uh, was with the apostles. Paul makes reference to Demas being in his company. But then in 2 Timothy, I believe it is, you have the text that says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. If we're going to utilize fear the right way, then we must aim our fear at the right thing. We must dread the very potential of coming short of the promise of God. But would you notice with me next, secondly, we must fear being passed over in God's purpose in redemption. Notice the words of verse 6. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now underscore the clause, some must enter therein. The apostles not only giving us a history lesson in this section in which he refers to the failure of the Israelites to enter into Canaan on account of their unbelief, but he's also giving us a theology lesson, and that lesson is simply this. God will succeed in advancing his own cause. His kingdom will come. His church will be built. As Christ himself said in John 6 and verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's tantamount to saying, Some must enter therein. The Lord Jesus, you see, paid too high a price for his people to lose them. We who believe are his inheritance. That is indeed a marvel of grace that poor, vile, and guilty sinners could somehow become Christ's inheritance. But it's true. The value Christ places on you must be measured by the price that he paid for you. And he paid the price, as we contemplated this morning, guess you could call this something of a good post-communion message this afternoon, he paid the price of a broken body and to shed blood for you. What this means, therefore, is that if unbelief gains such sway as to lead you away from Christ and leave you with the burden of guilt in the city of destruction, you will not hinder the advancement of Christ's cause. You will miss out in his purpose of grace, but you will not hinder his cause. Some must enter therein. Christ will see to it. The Holy Spirit will see to it. I draw great comfort from that truth, especially in the matter of evangelism. 
Christ has a people. He will bring them in. And in bringing them in, he will utilize his people as instruments to serve that purpose. It would have been easy, I suppose, for the Hebrew Christians of that day to view their Christian religion as being obscure. It was Judaism, after all, that possessed the temple. It was Judaism that traced its roots into antiquity. It was Judaism that still held sway over Jerusalem. The followers of Christ, though they may be great in number at that time, were still in the minority, and the temptation would have been strong among those Hebrew Christians to think that this obscure segment of Judaism would vanish in a very short time. Of course, their apostate brethren would do all they could to persuade them of that. They would not have known with much clarity what you and I know today, which is that Judaism, in fact, would be the thing that would vanish. The temple would be destroyed. The people would be scattered. And it would be Judaism that would become obscure while the kingdom of Christ would advance to all nations. Some must enter therein, our text tells us, And in fact, many would enter in, beginning at Jerusalem, but spreading out to Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth, Christ would say to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 that that is the course the gospel would take. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. That's what he said before ascending into heaven. Do we not find ourselves at times facing the same temptation, the temptation of thinking that it's the cause of Christ that's obscure, and it's the power of the nations that seem to hold sway? The forces of ungodliness are relentless. They never seem to grow weary of promoting their wicked and ungodly ways. And it seems like it's the cause of Christ that is continually in retreat and is becoming more and more obscure. And as this mindset settles over the minds and hearts of believers, then they become more and more governed by the fear of man rather than the fear of God. Here then is what we must guard ourselves against. Here is what we must dread being governed by the fear of man. Those that are governed by the fear of man, you see, have caved into unbelief. They failed to realize that there are some, indeed many, that must enter into the promise of God's rest. And though we don't see it yet by sight, we do know that the story has been told in the word of God from start to finish, and it's Christ's kingdom that prevails in the end. On a much grander scale than the destruction of Jerusalem, this whole world will give way to Christ at his return. This is why Peter exhorts us to be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved 
and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 2 Peter 3 and verse 12. Let us therefore fear that by caving into unbelief we'll not only miss the promise of his rest, but we'll miss the purpose that is destined to prevail. We must then utilize fear in the right way. Happy is the man that feareth always, we read in Proverbs 28, 14. That statement is true when we refer to the right kind of fear that is aimed in the right direction, and it remains for us to consider that right now. If we would utilize fear in the right way, we must fear our high priest in heaven. We must fear our high priest in heaven. Would you note the words of verse 14? Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now up to this point, uh, our consideration of the emotion of fear has been to consider it from the perspective of fright or dread. We should be afraid of coming short of a promise that has been left to us by God. We should be afraid of missing out on God's purpose of grace in redemption. It is fear from this perspective of being afraid that should instill in our hearts an attitude of watchfulness. We must, in other words, guard our minds and our hearts from unbelief, and fear is certainly a legitimate form of motivation for doing so. But this perspective of dread is not the only aspect of fear that must govern our minds and hearts. If all there was to fear was being afraid of certain things, then fear would be a form of bondage. In chapter 2 and verse 15, we find a verse that speaks of those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So our understanding of fear must go a step further than mere fright or dread. And we have a good description of that in that text that I referenced earlier, Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Reverence and godly fear. That's a good description of fear in its tempered form. It begins with the knowledge of God's majesty and holiness. Indeed, the frightening aspect of fear is intensified by what we read in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Oh, it is frightening to think that we are totally exposed to God. He knows what you do. He knows what you fail to do. He knows your thoughts. He knows your motives. He knows your affections. He knows, in other words, your heart. He can see right through you to the point that he knows you better than you know yourself. 
As sinners, we manage to fool others, and sometimes we may even manage to fool ourselves. The heart, after all, according to Jeremiah, is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can't. We can't plumb the depths of our own depraved hearts. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of God. We are completely exposed before him. But here is where this frightening aspect of fear is tempered into reverence and godly fear. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have a mediator between us and God. We have one to represent us, one to intercede for us, one who shed his blood for us, one who has delivered us from the dread of death because he died for us and bore our condemnation. We have a great high priest who became one of us, who gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. And so now we no longer are dominated by the dread of being exposed to God in our every word and thought and deed and motive. We have a covering, you see, in the person of Christ himself. Our lives are hidden in him and we are joined to him. And as a result, we no longer tremble and fear in a dreadful matter because of our exposure to God, but we are actually invited by God to come into his presence. Indeed, he invites us to come and to come boldly before this throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is what humbles us and moves us to reverence before God. Our great high priest has died for us and is risen and ascended into heaven for us and he represents us before the ruler of all creation. In our corrupt political climate today, it becomes easy to feel, doesn't it, that we're not represented by those that are elected to represent us. It seems all too clear that they have an agenda of their own and they represent special interests or they represent, more accurately, I suppose, their own interests. Isn't it good to know that we do have one to represent us before the ruler of all nations? And isn't it good to know that he faithfully represents us. He pleads his blood on our behalf and petitions his Father that every purchased blessing will be applied to his blood-bought people and that they'll be enabled to press on in their walk and in their service to him. Here is godly fear then, functioning as it should. We are aware of our sin, but we're aware also of our Savior's love and the provision he's made for us because of his love for us. Our desire then is to honor him. Our desire is to live for him. We feel that we owe him all that we have and all that we are. The thing that we most dread is grieving him or dishonoring him. 
We've come to hate the sins that too easily beset us because we know that it was our sins that cost him his lifeblood for us. But we love him because of the promise of rest and the reality of that promise that is ours even this very day. Oh, may we utilize fear then in the right way that we may be set free from all other forms of fear and we may glorify and enjoy our God on account of what he's done for us through Jesus Christ. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we pray that thou wilt help us to distinguish between the fear of man and the fear of God. And we ask, O Lord, that the fear of God would be tempered into solemn reverence and praise and thanksgiving because of Christ and what he's done for us. O oh Lord, it is a frightful thing to contemplate Christ even dying in our place, for we see by looking to the cross what sin deserves, and yet we also see the very dying form of one who gave himself for us. So, Lord, grant that we may indeed know the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, and may we serve thee acceptably with godly fear and with reverence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.